Welcome to another episode of the Stories, Tales, Myths, and Legends podcast. My name is Nathan, and in this episode, I'm going to bring you a story I found published in the Boy Scouts Book of Campfire Stories that was published in 1921. The title of the story is Wild Horse Hunter, and it was written by Zane Gray. I hope you enjoy. Wild Horse Hunter Three wild horse hunters made camp one night beside a little stream in the Seaver Valley, 500 miles as a crow flies from Bostel's Ford. These hunters had a poor outfit, excepting, of course, their horses. They were young men, rangy in build, lean and hard from life in the saddle, bronzed like Indians, still-faced and keen-eyed. Two of them appeared to be tired out and lagged at the campfire duties. When the meager meal was prepared, they sat cross-legged before a ragged tarpaulin, eating and drinking in silence. The sky in the west was rosy, slowly darkening. The valley floor billowed away, ridged and cut, growing gray and purple and dark. Walls of stone, pink with the last rays of the setting sun, enclosed the valley, stretching away toward a long, low Black Mountain range. The place was wild, beautiful, open, with something nameless that made the desert different from any other country. It was perhaps a loneliness of vast stretches of valley and stone, clear to the eye even after the sunset. That black mountain range, which looked close enough to ride to before dark, was a hundred miles distance. The shades of night fell swiftly, and it was dark by the time the hunters finished the meal. Then the campfire had burned low. One of the three dragged branches of dead cedars and replenished the fire. Quickly it flared up with the white flame and crackle characteristic of dry cedar. The night wind had risen, moaning through the gnarled, stunted cedars nearby, and it blew the fragrant wood smoke into the faces of the two hunters, who seemed too tired to move. I reckon a pipe would help me make up my mind, said one. Wall, Bill, replied the other dryly. Your mind's made up, else you'd not say smoke. Why? Because there ain't three pipefuls of that precious tobacco left. That's one apiece, then. Lynn, come and have a smoke of the last pipe with us. The tallest of the three, he who had brought the firewood, stood in the bright light of the blaze. He looked the born rider, light, lithe, powerful. Sure, I'll smoke, he replied. Then presently he accepted the pipe tendered him, and sitting down before the fire, he composed himself to the enjoyment which his companions evidently considered worthy of a decision they had reached. So this smoking means you both want to turn back? queried Lynn, his sharp gaze glancing darkly bright in the glow of the fire. Yep, we'll turn back. And gee, the relief I feel, replied one. We've been long coming to it, Lynn, and that was for your sake, replied the other. Lynn slowly pulled at the pipe and blew out the smoke as if reluctant to part with it. Let's go on, he said quietly. No, I've had all I want of chasing that wild stallion, returned Bill shortly. The other spread wide his hands and bent an expostulating look upon the one called Lynn. We're two hundred miles out, he said. There's only a little flour left in the bag, no coffee, only a little salt. All the hosses except your big nagger are all played out. 
We're already in strange country, and you know what we've heard of this and all to the south. It's all canyons, and somewheres down there is that awful canyon none of our people ever seen. But we heard of it, an awful cut-up country. He finished with a conviction that no one could say a word against the common sense of his argument. Lynn was silent, as if impressed. Bill raised a strong, lean brown hand in a forceful gesture. We can't catch wildfire. That seemed to him evidently a more convincing argument than his comrades. Bill sure is right if I'm wrong, which I ain't, went the other. Lynn, we've trailed that wild stallion for six weeks. That's the longest chase he ever had. He's left his old range, he's cut out his band, and left him one by one. We've tried every trick we know on him, and he's too smart for us. There's a hoss. Why, Lynn, we're all but gone up the dogs chasing the wildfire. And now I'm done, and I'm glad of it. Then there was another short silence, which presently Bill opened his lips to break. Lynn, it makes me sick to quit. I ain't denying that for a long time I've had hopes of catching wildfire. He's the grandest hoss I ever laid eyes on. I reckon no man, unless he was an Arab, ever seen one as good. But now that's neither here nor there. We've got to hit the back trail. Boys, I reckon I'll stick to Wildfire's tracks, said Lynn in the same quiet tone. Bill swore at him, and the other hunter grew excited and concerned. Lynn Sloan, you are gone plumb crazy over that red hoss. I, I reckon, replied Sloan. The working of his throat as he swallowed could be plainly seen by his companions. Bill looked at his ally as if to confirm some sudden understanding between them. They took Sloane's attitude gravely, and they wagged their heads doubtfully. It was significant of the nature of the riders that they accepted his attitude and had consideration for his feelings. For them, the situation subtly changed. For weeks, they had been three wild horse wranglers on a hard chase after a valuable stallion. They had failed to get even close to him. They had gone to the limit of their endurance and of the outfit, and it was time to turn back. But Sloan had conceived that strange and rare longing for a horse, a passion understood, if not shared, by all riders. And they knew that he would catch wildfire or die in the attempt. From that moment, their attitude towards Sloan changed as subtly as had come the knowledge of his feeling. The gravity and gloom left their faces. It seemed they might have regretted what they had said about the futility of catching wildfire. They did not want Sloan to see or feel the hopelessness of his task. I tell you, Lynn, said Bill, your hoss naggers as good as when we started. Ah, he's better, vouched the other rider. Naga needed to lose some weight. Lynn, have you got an extra set of shoes for him? No full set, only three left, replied Lynn soberly. Well, that's enough. You can keep Naga shod and maybe that red stallion will get sore feet and go lame. Then you'd stand a chance. But wildfire keeps traveling the valleys, the soft ground, said Sloan. No matter, he's leaving the country, and he's bound to strike sandstone sooner or later. Then, by gosh, maybe he'll wear off them hooves. Say, can't he ring bells off in the rocks? exclaimed Bill, 
Boys, do you think he's leaving the country? inquired Sloan anxiously. Sure he is, replied Bill. He ain't the first stallion I've chased off the Sever Range, and I know it's a stallion that makes for new country when you push him hard. Yup, Lynn, he's sure leaving, added the other comrade. Why, he's traveled a beeline for days. I'll bet he's seen us many times. Wildfire's about as smart as any man, and was bone wild, and his damn bone wild, and there you have it. The wildest of all wild creatures, a wild stallion with the intelligence of a man. A grand hosslin, but one that's killed stallions all over the Siva range. A wild stallion that's a killer. I never liked him for that. Could it be broke? I'll break him, said Lynn Sloan grimly. It's getting him that's the job. I've got patience to break a hoss, but patience can't catch a streak of lightning. Nope, you're right, replied Bill. If you have some luck, you'll get him, maybe. If he wears out his feet, or if you crowd him into a narrow canyon, or you run him into a bad place where he can't get by you, that might happen. And then, with Nagger, you stand a chance. Did you ever tire that hoss? Not yet. And how fur did you run him without a break? Why, when we were catching that sorrel last year, I rode Nagger myself, 30 miles, and most at a hard gallop, and he never turned a hair. I've beat that, replied Lynn. He could run hard 50 miles, maybe more. Honestly, I'd never seen him tired yet. If only he was fast. Well, Nagger ain't so slow, come to think of it, replied Bill with a grunt. He's good enough for you to not want another hoss. Then you're going to wear out Wildfire and then trap him somehow. Is that the plan? Asked the other comrade. I haven't any plan. I'll just tail him like a cougar trails a deer. Lynn, if Wildfire gives you the slip, he'll have to fly. You've got the best eyes for tracks of any wrangler in Utah. Sloan accepted the compliment with a fleeting, doubtful smile on his dark face. He did not reply, and no more was said by his comrades. They rolled with their backs to the fire. Sloan put on more wood, for the keen wind was cold and cutting. Then he lay down, his head on his saddle, with a goatskin under him and a saddle blanket over him. All three were soon asleep. The wind whipped the sand and ashes and smoke over the sleepers. Coyotes barked from near in the darkness, and from the valley ridge came a faint mourn of a hunting wolf. The desert night grew darker and colder. The Stewart brothers were wild horse hunters for the sake of trades and occasional sales. But Lynn Sloan never traded nor sold a horse he had captured. The excitement of the game and the lure of the desert and the love of a horse were what kept him at his profitless work. His type was rare in the uplands. These were the early days of the settlement of Utah, and only a few of the hardiest and most adventurous pioneers had penetrated the desert in the southern part of the vast upland. And with them came some of that wild breed of riders to which Sloan and the Stuarts belonged. Horses were really more important and necessary than men, and this singular fact gave these lonely riders a calling. Before the Spaniards came, there were no horses in the West. 
those explorers left or lost horses all over the Southwest. Many of them were Arabian horses of purest blood. American explorers and travelers at the outset of the 19th century encountered countless droves of horses all over the plains. Across the Grand Canyon, however, wild horses were comparatively few in number in these early days. And these had probably come in by way of California. The Stuarts and Sloan had no established mode of catching wild horses. The game had not developed fast enough for that. Every chase of horse or drove was different, and once in many attempts they met with success. A favorite method originated by the Stuarts was to find a waterhole frequented by the band of horses or the stallion wanted, and to build round this hole a corral with an opening for the horses to get in. Then the hunters would watch the trap at night, and if the horses went in to drink, a gate was closed across the opening. Another method of the Stuarts was to trail a coveted horse up on a mesa or a highland, places which seldom had more than one trail of ascent and descent, and there they would block the escape and cut lines of cedars to which the quarry was run till he was captured. Still, another method, discovered by accident, was to shoot a horse lightly in the neck and sting him. This last, called creasing, was seldom successful, and for that matter, in any method, ten times as many horses were killed as captured. Lynn Sloan helped the Stuarts in their own way, but he had no especial liking for their tricks. Perhaps a few remarkable captures of remarkable horses had spoiled Sloan. He was always trying what the brothers claimed to be impossible. He was a fearless rider, but he had the fault of saving his mount. And to kill a wild horse was a tragedy for him. He would much rather have hunted alone, and he had been alone on the trail of the stallion Wildfire when the Stuarts had joined him. Lynn Sloan awoke the next morning and rolled out of his blanket at his usual early hour, but he was not early enough to say goodbye to the Stuarts. They were gone. The fact surprised him and somehow relieved him. They had left him more than his share of the outfit, and perhaps that was why they had slipped off before dawn. They knew him well enough to know that he would not have accepted it. Besides, perhaps they felt a little humiliation at abandoning a chase which he chose to keep up. Anyway, they were gone, apparently without breakfast. The morning was clear, cool, with the air dark like that before a storm, and in the east over the steely wall of stone shone a redness glowing brighter. Sloan looked away to the west, down the trail taken by his comrades, but he saw nothing moving against that cedar-dotted waste. Goodbye, he said, and he spoke as if he were saying goodbye to more than his comrades. I reckon I won't see Seaver Village soon again, and maybe never, he soliloquized. There was no one to regret him, unless it was old Mother Hall who had been kind to him on those rare occasions when he got out of the wilderness. Still, it was with regret that he gazed away across the Red Valley to the west. 
Sloan had no home. His father and mother had been lost in the massacre of a wagon train by Indians, and he had been one of the few saved and brought to Salt Lake. That had happened when he was ten years old. His life thereafter had been hard, and but for his sturdy Texas training he might not have survived. The last five years he had been a horse hunter in the wild uplands of Nevada and Utah. Sloan turned his attention to the pack of supplies. The stewards had divided the flour and the parched corn equally, and unless he was greatly mistaken, they had left him most of the coffee and all of the salt. Now I hold that decent of Bill and Abe, said Sloan regretfully, but I could have got along without it better than they could. And he swiftly set about kindling a fire and getting a meal. In the midst of his task, a sudden ruddy brightness fell around him. Lynn Sloan paused in his work to look up. The sun had risen over the eastern wall. Ah, he said and drew a deep breath. The cold, steely, darkling sweep of desert had been transformed. It was now a world of red earth and golden rocks and purple sage, with everywhere the endless, straggling green cedars. A breeze whipped in, making the fire roar softly. The sun felt warm on his cheek, and at that moment, he heard the whistle of his horse. Good old nagger, he said. I sure won't have to track you this morning. Presently, he went off into the cedars to find nagger and the mustang that he used to carry a pack. Nagger was grazing in a little open patch among the trees, but the pack horse was missing. Sloan seemed to know in what direction to go find the trail. He came upon it very soon. The pack horse wore hobbles, but he belonged to the class that could cover a great deal of ground when hobbled. Sloan did not expect the horse to go far, considering the grass thereabouts was good, but in a wild horse country, it was not safe to give any horse a chance. The call of his wild brethren would be irresistible. Sloan, however, found the Mustang standing quietly in a clump of cedars, and removing the hobbles, he mounted and rode back to camp. Nagger caught sight of him and came at his call. This horse Nagger appeared as unique in his class as Sloan was rare among riders. Nagger seemed of several colors, though black predominated. His coat was shaggy, almost woolly like that of a sheep. He was huge, raw-boned, knotty, long of body and long of leg, with the head of a war charger. His build did not suggest speed. There appeared to be something slow and ponderous about him, similar to an elephant, with the same suggestion of power and endurance. Sloan discarded the pack saddle and bags. The latter were almost empty. He roped the tarpaulin on the back of the Mustang, and making a small bundle of his few supplies, he tied that to the tarpaulin. His blanket he used for a saddle blanket on Nagger. Of the utensils left by the stewards, he chose a couple of small iron pans with long handles. The rest he left. In his saddlebags, he had a few extra horseshoes, some nails, bullets for his rifle, and a knife with a heavy blade. Not a rich outfit for a far country, he mused. Sloan did not talk very much, and when he did, he addressed Nagger and himself simultaneously. Evidently, he expected a long chase, one from which he would not return. And light as his outfit was, it would grow too heavy. Then he mounted and rode down the gradual slope, facing the valley and the black, 
bold, flat mountain to the southeast. Some few hundred yards from the camp, he halted Nagger and bent over in the saddle to scrutinize the ground. The clean-cut track of a horse showed in the bare, hard sand. The hoof marks were large, almost oval, perfect in shape, and manifestly, they were beautiful to Lynn Sloan. He gazed at them for a long time, and then he looked across the dotted red valley up to the vast, rigidy steps toward the black plateau and beyond. It was the look that an Indian gives to a strange country. Then Sloan slipped off the saddle and knelt to scrutinize the horse tracks. A little sand had blown into the depressions, and some of it was wet and some of it was dry. He took his time about examining it, and he even tried gently blowing other sand into the tracks to compare that with what was already there. Finally, he stood up and addressed Nagger. Reckon we won't have to argue with Abe and Bill this morning, he said, with satisfaction. Wildfire made that track yesterday before sunup. Thereupon, Sloan mounted and put Nagger to a trot. The pack horse followed with an alacrity that showed that he had no desire for loneliness. As straight as a beeline, Wildfire had left a trail down into the floor of the valley. He had not stopped to graze. He had not looked for water. Sloan had hoped to find a water hole in one of the deep washes in the red earth, but if there had been any water there, Wildfire would have scented it. He had not had a drink for three days that Sloan knew of, and Nagger had not drunk for forty hours. Sloan had a canvas water bag hanging over the pommel, but it was a habit of his to deny himself as far as possible till his horse could drink also. Like an Indian, Sloan ate and drank but little. It was four hours of steady trotting to reach the middle and bottom of that wide, flat valley. A network of washes cut up the whole center of it, and they were all as dry as bleached bone. To cross these, Sloan only had to keep Wildfire's trail, and it was proof of Nagger's quality that he did not have to veer from the stallion's course. It was hot down in the lowland. The heat struck up, reflected from the sand, but it was a March sun and no more than pleasant to Sloan. The wind rose, however, and blew dust and sand in the faces of the horse and rider. Except lizards, Sloan did not see any living things. Miles of low greasewood and sparse yellow sage led to the first almost imperceptible rise of the valley floor on that side. The distant cedars beckoned to Sloan. He was not patient, because he was on the trail of wildfire, but nevertheless, the hours seemed short. Sloan had no past to think about, and the future held nothing except a horse, so his thoughts revolved around the possibilities connected with this chase of wildfire. The chase was hopeless in such country as he was traveling, and if wildfire chose to roam around valleys like this one, Sloan would fail utterly. But the stallion had long ago left his band of horses, and then, one by one, his favorite consorts, and now he was alone, headed with unerring instincts for wild, untrammeled ranges. He had been used to the pure, cold water and the succulent grass of the cold desert uplands. Assuredly, he would not tarry in such barren lands as these. For Sloan, an ever-present and growing fascination lay in Wildfire's clear, sharply defined tracks. It was as if every hoof mark told him something. 
Once, far up the interminable ascent, he found on a ridge top tracks where wildfire had halted and turned. Ha, Nagger, cried Sloan exultingly. Look there. He's begun facing about. He's wondering if we're still after him. He's worried, but we'll keep out of sight a day behind. When Sloan reached the cedars, the sun was low down in the west. He looked back across the fifty miles of the valley to the colored cliffs and walls. He seemed to be above them now, and the cool air with tang of cedar and juniper, strengthened the impression that he had climbed high. A mile or so ahead of him rose a gray cliff with breaks in it and a line of cedars or pinions on the level rims. He believed these breaks to be the mouths of canyons, and so it turned out. Wildfire's trail led into the mouth of a narrow canyon with very steep and high walls. Nagger snorted his perception of water, and the Mustang whistled. Wildfire's tracks led to a point under the wall where a spring gushed forth. There were mountain lion and deer tracks also, as well as those of some smaller game. Sloan made camp here. The Mustang was tired, but Nagger, upon taking a long drink, rolled in the grass as if he had just begun the trip. After eating, Sloan took his rifle and went out to look for deer but there appeared to be none at hand. He came across many lion tracks and saw, with apprehension, where one had taken Wildfire's trail. Wildfire had grazed up the canyon, keeping on and on. He was likely to go miles in a night. Sloan reflected that as small as his own chances of getting Wildfire were, they were still better than those of the mountain lion. Wildfire was the most cunning of all animals, a wild stallion. His speed and endurance were incomparable. His scent as keen as those animals that relied wholly upon scent to warn them of danger. And as for sight, it was Sloane's belief that no hoofed creature, except the mountain sheep used to high altitudes, could see as far as a wild horse. It bothered Sloane a little that he was getting into lion country. Nagger showed nervousness, something unusual for him. Sloan tied both horses with long halters and stationed them on patches of thick grass. Then he put a cedar stump on the fire and went to sleep. Upon awakening and going to the spring, he was somewhat chagrined to see that deer had come down to drink early. Evidently, they were numerous. A lion country was always deer country, for the lions followed the deer. Sloan was packed and saddled and on his way before the sun reddened the canyon wall. He walked the horses. From time to time, he saw signs of wildfire's consistent progress. The canyon narrowed and the walls grew lower and the grass increased. There was a decided ascent all the time. Sloan could find no evidence that the canyon had ever been traveled by hunters or Indians. The day was pleasant and warm and still. Every once in a while, a little breath of wind would bring a fragrance of cedar and pinion and a sweet hint of pine and sage. At every turn he looked ahead, expecting to see the green of pine and the gray of sage. Toward the middle of the afternoon, coming to a place where wildfire had taken to a trot, he put Nagger to that gate, and by sundown had worked up to where the canyon was only a shallow ravine and finally it turned once more to loose itself in a level where straggling pines stood high above the cedars and great dark green silver spruces stood above the pines. 
and here were patches of sage, fresh and pungent, and long reaches of bleached grass. It was the edge of a forest. Wildfire's trail went on. Sloan came at length to a group of pines, and here he found the remains of a campfire and some flint arrowheads. Indians had been in there, probably having come from the opposite direction to Sloan's. This encouraged him, for where Indians could hunt, so could he. Soon he was entering a forest where cedars and pinions and pines began to grow thickly. Presently he came upon a faint, defined trail, just a dim, dark line, even to an experienced eye. But it was a trail, and wildfire had taken it. Sloan halted for the night. The air was cold, and the dampness of it gave him an idea that there were snowbanks somewhere not far distant. The dew was already heavy on the grass. He hobbled the horses and put a bell on Nagger. A bell might frighten lions that had never heard one. Then he built a fire and cooked his meal. It had been long since he had camped high up among the pines. The sough of the wind pleased him like music. There had begun to be prospects of pleasant experience along with the toil of chasing wildfire. He was entering new and strange and beautiful country. How far might this chase take him? He did not care. He was not sleepy. But even if he had been, it developed that he must wait till the coyotes ceased their barking round his campfire. They came so close that he saw their gray shadows in the gloom. But presently they wearied of yelping at him and went away. After that, the silence, broken only by the wind as it roared and lulled, seemed beautiful to Sloane. He lost completely the sense of vague regret which had remained with him, and he forgot the Stuarts. And suddenly he felt absolutely free, alone, with nothing behind to remember, with wild, thrilling, nameless life before him. Then the long mourn of a timber wolf wailed in the wind. Seldom had he heard the cry of one of those night wanderers. There was nothing like it. No sound like it to fix in the lone camper's heart the great solitude and the wild. In the early morning, when all was gray and big, dark pines were shadowy specters, Sloane was awakened by the cold. His hands were so numb that he had difficulty starting a fire. He stood over the blaze, warming them. The air was nipping clear and thin, and sweet with frosty fragrance. Daylight came while he was still in the midst of his morning meal. A white frost covered the ground and cracked under his feet as he went out to bring in the horses. He saw fresh deer tracks, then he went back to camp for his rifle. Keeping a sharp lookout for game, he continued his search for the horses. The forest was open and park-like. There were no fallen trees or evidence of fire. Presently he came to a wide glade in the midst of which Nagger and the pack Mustang were grazing with a herd of deer. The size of the latter amazed Stone. The deer he had hunted back on the Seaver range were much smaller than these. Evidently, these were mule deer, closely allied to the elk. 
They were so tame they stood facing him curiously, with long ears erect. It was sheer murder to kill a deer standing and watching like that. But Sloane was out of meat and hungry and facing a long, hard trip. He shot a buck, which leaped spasmatically away, trying to follow the herd, and fell at the edge of the glade. Sloane cut out a haunch, and then, catching the horses, he returned to camp, where he packed and saddled and at once rode out on the dim trail. The wilderness of the country he was entering was evident in the fact that as he passed the glade where he had shot the deer a few moments before, there were coyotes quarreling over the carcass. Sloane could see ahead and on each side several hundred yards, and presently he ascertained that the forest floor was not so level as he had supposed. He had entered a valley or was traveling a wide, gentle, sloping pass. He went through thickets of juniper and had to go around clumps of quaking asp. The pines grew larger and farther apart. Cedars and pinions had been left behind, and he met with no silver spruces after leaving camp. Probably that point was the height of a divide. There were banks of snow in some of the hollows on the north side. Evidently the snow had very recently melted, and it was evident that the depth of the snow here had been fully ten feet, judging from the mutilation of the juniper trees where the deer, standing on hard, frozen crusts, had browsed upon the branches. The quiet of the forest thrilled Sloane, and the only movement was the occasional gray flash of deer or coyote across a glade. No birds of any species crossed Sloane's sight. He came presently upon a lion track in the trail, made probably a day before. Sloane grew curious about it, seeing how it held as he was holding to wildfire's tracks. After a mile or so, he made sure the lion had been trailing the stallion, and for a second he felt a cold contraction of his heart. Already he loved Wildfire, and by virtue of all this toil of travel considered the wild horse his property. (laughs) No lion could ever get close to Wildfire, he soliloquized with his short laugh. Of that he was absolutely certain. The sun rose, melting the frost, and a breath of warm air, laden with the scent of pine, moved heavily under the huge yellow trees. Sloane passed a point where the remains of an old campfire and a pile of deer antlers were further proof that Indians visited this plateau to hunt. From this camp broader, more deeply defined trails led away to the south and to the east. Sloane kept to the east trail in which Wildfire's tracks and those of the lion showed clearly. It was about the middle of the forenoon when the tracks of the stallion and the lion left the trail to lead up a little draw where the grass grew thick. Sloane followed, reading the signs of Wildfire's progress and the action of his pursuer, as well as if he had seen them. Here the stallion had plowed into the snowbank, eating a hole two feet deep. Then. He grazed around a little, then on and on. There his splendid tracks were deep in the soft earth. Sloane knew what to expect when the track of the lion veered from those of the horse, and he followed the lion's tracks. The ground was soft from the late melting of the snow, and Nagger sunk deep. The lion left a plain track. Here he stole steadily along, 
There he left many tracks at a point where he might have halted to make sure of his scent. He was circling on the trail of the stallion, with cunning intent of ambush. The end of this slow, careful stalk of the lion, as told in his tracks, came upon the edge of a knoll where he had crouched to watch and wait. From this perch he had made a magnificent spring, Sloane estimating it to be forty feet, but he had missed the stallion. There were Wildfire's tracks again, slow and short, and then deep and sharp, where, in the impetus of fright, he had sprung out of reach. A second leap of the lion and the lessening bounds, and finally an abrupt turn from Wildfire's trail told the futility of that stalk. Sloane made certain that Wildfire was so keen that as he grazed along, he had kept to open ground. Wildfire had run for a mile, then slowed down to a trot, and he had circled to get back to the trail he had left. Sloane believed the horse was just so intelligent. At any rate, Wildfire struck the trail again, and turned at right angles to follow it. Here the forest floor appeared perfectly level. Patches of snow became frequent and larger as Sloane went on. At length, the patches closed up, and soon extended as far as he could see. It was soft, affording difficult travel. Sloane crossed hundreds of deer tracks, and the trail he was on evidently became a deer runway. Presently, far down one of the aisles, between the great pines, Sloane saw what appeared to be a yellow cliff, far away. It puzzled him, and as he went on he received the impression that the forest dropped out of sight ahead, and the trees grew thicker, obstructing his view. Presently the trail became soggy, and he had to help his horse. The mustang floundered in the soft snow and earth. Cedars and pinions appeared again, making travel still more laborious. All at once there came to Sloan a strange consciousness of light and wind and space and void. On the instant, his horse halted with a snort. Sloan quickly looked up. Had he come to the end of the world? An abyss, a canyon, yawned beneath him, beyond all comparison in its greatness. His keen eye, educated to desert distance and dimensions, swept down and across, taking in the tremendous truth before it staggered his comprehension. But a second sweeping glance, slower, becoming intoxicated with what it beheld, saw gigantic cliff steps and yellow slopes dotted with cedars, leading down to clefts filled with purple smoke, and these led on to a ragged red world of rock, bare, shining, bold, uplifted in the mesa, dome, peak, and crag, clear and strange in the morning light, still and sleeping like death. This, then, was the Great Canyon, which had seemed like a hunter's fable rather than truth. Sloan's sight dimmed, blurring the spectacle, and he found that his eyes had filled with tears. He wiped them away and looked again and again until he was confounded by the vastness and the grandeur and the vague sadness of the scene. Nothing he had ever looked at had affected him like this canyon, 
although the stewards had tried to prepare him for it. It was the horse hunter's passion that reminded him of his pursuit. The deer trail led down through a break in the wall. Only a few rods of it could be seen. This trail was passable, even though choked with snow. But the depth beyond this wall seemed to fascinate Sloane and hold him back, used as he was to desert trails. Then the clean mark of Wildfire's hoof brought back the old thrill. This place fits you, Wildfire, muttered Sloane, dismounting. He started down, leading Nagger. The Mustang followed. Sloane kept to the wall side of the trail, fearing the horses might slip. The snow held firmly at first, and Sloane had no trouble. The gap in the rim rock widened to a slope thickly grown over with cedars and pinions and manzanita. This growth made the descent more laborious, yet afforded means at least for Sloane to go down with less danger. There was no stopping. Once started, the horses had to keep on. Sloane saw the impossibility of ever climbing out while the snow was there. The trail zigzagged down and down. Very soon, the yellow wall hung tremendously over him, straight up. The snow became thinner and softer. The horses began to slip. They slid on their haunches. Fortunately, the slope grew less steep, and Sloane could see below where it reached out to comparatively level ground. Still, a slight mishap might yet occur. Sloane kept as close to Nagger as possible, helping him whenever he could do it. The Mustang slipped, rolled over, and then slipped past Sloane, went down the slope to bring up in a cedar. Sloane worked down to him and extricated him. Then the huge Nagger began to slide. Snow and loose rock slid with him, and so did Sloane. The little avalanche stopped of its own accord, and then Sloane dragged Nagger down and down presently to come to the end of the steep descent. Sloane looked up to see that he had made short work of a thousand-foot slope. Here, cedars and pinions grew thickly enough to make a forest. The snow thinned out to patches and then failed. But the going remained bad for a while, as the horses sank deep in soft red earth. This eventually grew more solid and finally dry. Sloane worked out of the cedars to what appeared a grassy plateau enclosed by the great green and white slopes with its yellow wall overhanging and distant mesas and cliffs. Here the view was restricted. He was down on the first bench of a great canyon. And there was the deer trail, a well-worn path keeping to the edge of the slope. Sloane came to a deep cut in the earth and the trail headed it, where it began at the last descent of the slope. It was the source of a canyon. He could look down to see the bare-worn rock, and a hundred yards from where he stood, the earth was washed from its rims, and it began to show depth and something of that ragged outline which told of violence of flood. The trail headed many canyons like this, all running down across this bench, disappearing, dropping invisibly. The trail swung to the left under the great slope, and then presently it climbed up to a higher bench. Here were brush and grass and huge patches of sage, so pungent that it stung Sloane's nostrils. Then he went down again, this time to come to a clear brook lined by willows. 
Here the horses drank long, and Sloane refreshed himself. The sun had grown hot. There was fragrance of flowers he could not see, and a low murmur of a waterfall that was likewise invisible. For most of the time his view was shut off, but occasionally he reached a point where through some break he saw towers gleaming red in the sun. A strange place, a place of silence and smoky veils in the distance. Time passed swiftly. Toward the waning of the afternoon he began to climb what appeared to be a saddle of land connecting the canyon wall on the left with a great plateau, gold-rimmed and pine-fringed, rising more and more in his way as he advanced. At sunset, Sloan was more shut in than for several hours. He could tell the time was sunset by the golden light on the cliff wall again overhanging him. The slope was gradual up this pass to the saddle, and upon coming to a spring in the first pine trees, he decided to halt for camp. The Mustang was almost exhausted. Thereupon he hobbled the horses in the luxuriant grass around the spring, and then unrolled his pack. Once, as dusk came stealing down, while he was eating his meal, Nagger whistled in fright. Sloane saw a gray, pantherish form gliding away into the shadows. He took a quick shot at it, but missed. It's a lion country, all right, he said. And then he set about building a big fire on the other side of the grassy plot, so as to have the horses between fires. He cut all the venison into thin strips and spent an hour roasting them. He lay down to rest, and he said, Wonder where Wildfire is tonight? Am I closer to him? Where's he heading for? The night was warm and still. It was black near the huge cliff, and overhead velvety blue with the stars of white fire. It seemed to him that he had become more thoughtful and observing of the aspects of his wild environment, and he felt a welcome consciousness of loneliness. Then sleep came to him, and the night seemed short. In the gray dawn he arose refreshed. The horses were restive. Nagger snorted a welcome. Evidently they had passed an uneasy night. Sloane found lion tracks at the spring and in the sandy places. Presently he was on his way up to the notch between the great wall and the plateau. A growth of thick scrub oak made travel difficult. It had not appeared far up to that saddle, but it was far. There were straggling pine trees and huge rocks that obscured his gaze. But once up, he saw that the saddle was only a narrow ridge, curved to slope on both sides. Straight before Sloan and under him opened the canyon, blazing and glorious along the peaks and ramparts where the rising sun struck. Misty and smoky and shadowy down in those mysterious depths. It took an effort not to keep on gazing, but Sloan turned to the grim business of his pursuit. The trail he saw leading down had been made by Indians. It was used probably once a year by them, and also by wild animals. And it was exceedingly steep and rough. Wildfire had paced to and fro along the narrow ridge of that saddle, making many tracks, before he had headed down again. Sloan imagined that the great stallion had been daunted by the tremendous chasm, but had finally faced it meaning to put this obstacle between him and his pursuers. 
It never occurred to Sloane to attribute less intelligence to wildfire than that. So, dismounting, Sloane took Nagger's bridle and started down. The Mustang with the pack was reluctant. He snorted and whistled and pawed the earth. But he would not be left alone, so he followed. The trail led down under the cedars that fringed the precipice. Sloane was aware of this without looking. He attended only to the trail and to his horse. Only an Indian could have picked out that course, and it was cruel to put a horse to it. But Nagger was powerful, sure-footed, and he would go anywhere that Sloan led him. Gradually, Sloan worked down and away from the bulging rim wall. It was hard, rough work, and risky because it could not be accomplished slowly. Brush and rocks, loose shale and weathered slope, long, dusty inclines of yellow earth and jumbles of stone. These made bad going for miles of slow, zigzag trail down out of the cedars. Then the trail entered what appeared to be a ravine. That ravine became a canyon. At its head was a dry wash, full of gravel and rocks. It began to cut deep down into the bowels of the earth. It shut outside of the surrounding walls and peaks. Water appeared from under a cliff, and augmented by other springs, became a brook. Hot, dry, and barren at its beginning, this cleft became cool and shady, and luxuriant with grass and flowers and amber moss with silver blossoms. The rocks had changed color from yellow to deep red. Four hours of turning and twisting endlessly down and down over the boulders and banks and every conceivable roughness of earth and rock finished the pack mustang and Sloan mercifully left him in a long reach of canyon where the grass and water never failed. In this place, Sloan halted for the noon hour letting Nagger have his fill of the rich grazing. Nagger's three days in grassy upland, despite the continuous travel by day, had improved him. He looked fat, and Sloan had not yet caught the horse resting. Nagger was iron to endure. Here, Sloan left all the outfit except what was on his saddle, and the sack containing the few pounds of meat and supplies, and the two utensils. This sack he tied on the back of his saddle and resumed his journey. Presently he came to a place where wildfire had doubled on his trail and had turned up a side canyon. The climb out was hard on Sloan, if not on Nagger. Once up, Sloan found himself upon a wide, barren plateau of glaring red rocks and clumps of greasewood and cactus. The plateau was miles wide, shut in by great walls and mesas of colored rock. The afternoon sun beat down fiercely. A blast of wind as if from a furnace swept across the plateau, and it was laden with red dust. Sloan walked here, where he could have ridden and he made several miles of up-and-down progress over this rough plateau. The great walls of the opposite side of the canyon loomed appreciably closer. What, Sloan wondered, was at the bottom of this rent in the earth? The great desert river was down there, of course, but he knew nothing of it. Would that turn back wildfire? Sloan thought grimly how he had always claimed Nagger to be part fish and part bird. Wildfire was not going to escape. By and by, only isolated mescal plants with long yellow-plumed spears 
broke the bare monotony of the plateau, and Sloan passed from red sand and gravel to a red, soft shale, and from that to hard red rock. Here, wildfire's tracks were lost the first time in seven weeks. But Sloan had his direction down that plateau with the cleavage lines of the canyons to his right and to the left. At times, Sloan found a vestige of the old Indian trail, and this made him doubly sure of being right. He did not need to have wildfire's tracks. He let Nagger pick the way, and the horse made no mistake in finding the line of least resistance. But that grew harder and harder. This bare rock, like a file, would soon wear wildfire's hooves thin. And Sloan rejoiced. Perhaps somewhere down in this awful chasm, he and Nagger would have it out with the stallion. Sloan began to look far ahead, beginning to believe that he might see wildfire. Twice he had seen wildfire, but only at a distance. Then he had resembled a running streak of fire, whence his name, which Sloan had given him. This bare region of rock began to cut up into gullies. It was necessary to head them or to climb in and out. Miles of travel really meant little progress straight ahead. But Sloan kept on. He was hot, and Nagger was hot, and that made hard work easier. Sometimes on the wind came a low thunder. Was it a storm, or an avalanche slipping, or falling water? He could not tell. The sound was significant and haunting. Of one thing he was sure, that he could not have found his back trail. But he divined that he was never to retrace his steps on this journey. The stretch of broken plateau before him grew wilder and bolder of outline, darker in color, weirder in aspect and progress across it grew slower, more dangerous. There were many places Nagger should not have been put to, where a slip meant a broken leg. But Sloan could not turn back, and something besides an indomitable spirit kept him going. Again, the sound resembling thunder assailed his ears, louder this time. The plateau appeared to be ending in a series of great capes or promontories. Sloan feared he would soon come out upon a promontory from which he might see the impossibility of further travel. He felt relieved down in the gullies where he could see not far. He climbed out of one presently, from which there extended a narrow ledge with a slant too perilous for any horse. He stepped out upon that with far less confidence than Nagger. To the right was a bulge of low wall and a few feet to the left, a dark precipice. The trail here was faintly outlined, and it was only six inches wide and slanting as well. It seemed endless to Sloan, that ledge. He looked only down at his feet and listened to Nagger's steps. The big horse trod carefully but naturally, and he did not slip. That ledge extended in a long curve, turning slowly away from the precipice and ascending a little at the further end. Sloan drew a deep breath of relief when he led Nagger up on that level rock. Suddenly, a strange yet familiar sound halted Sloan as if he had been struck. The wild, shrill, high-pitched, piercing whistle of a stallion. 
Nagger neighed a blast in reply and pounded the rock with his iron-shod hooves. With a thrill, Sloane looked ahead. There, some few hundred yards distant, on a promontory, stood a red horse. It's wildfire, Sloane said tensely. He could not believe his sight. He imagined he was dreaming, but as Nagger stamped and snorted defiance, Sloane looked with his fixed and keen gaze and knew that beautiful picture was no lie. Wildfire was as red as fire. His long mane, wild in the wind, was like a whipping, black-streaked flame. Silhouetted there against that canyon background, he seemed gigantic, a demon horse, ready to plunge into the fiery depths. He was looking back over his shoulder, his head very high, and every line of him was instinct with wildness. Again, he sent out that shrill, air-splitting whistle. Sloane understood it to be a clarion call to Nagger. If Nagger had been alone, Wildfire would have killed him. The Red Stallion was a killer of horses. All over the Utah range, he had left the trail of a murderer. Nagger understood this, too, for he whistled back in rage and terror. It took an iron arm to hold him, then Wildfire plunged, apparently down, and vanished from Sloane's sight. Sloane hurried onward, to be blocked by a huge crack in the rocky plateau. This he had to head, and then another, like an obstacle, checked his haste to reach that promontory. He was forced to go more slowly. Wildfire had been close only as to sight, and this was the great canyon that dwarfed distance and magnified proximity. Climbing down and up, toiling on, he at last learned patience. He had seen Wildfire at a close range. That was enough. So he plodded on, once more returning to careful regard of Nagger. It took an hour of work to reach the point where wildfire had disappeared. A promontory indeed it was, overhanging a valley a few thousand feet below. A white torrent of stream wound through it. There were lines of green cottonwoods following the winding course. Then Sloane saw wildfire, slowly crossing the flat toward the stream. He had gone down that cliff, which to Sloane looked perpendicular. Wildfire appeared to be walking lame. Sloane, making sure of this, suffered a pang. Then, when the significance of such lameness dawned upon him, he whooped his wild joy and waved his hat. The red stallion must have heard, for he looked up. Then he went on again and waded into the stream, where he drank long. When he started to cross, the swift current drove him back in several places. The water wreathed white around him, but evidently it was not deep, and finally he crossed. From the other side, he looked up again at Nagger and Sloane, and, going on, he soon was out of sight in the cottonwoods. How to get down, muttered Sloane. There was a break in the cliff wall, a bare stone slant where horses had gone down and come up. That was enough for Sloane to know. He would have attempted the descent if he were sure no other horse but Wildfire had ever gone down there, but Sloane's hair began to rise stiff on his head. A horse like Wildfire and Mountain Sheep and Indian Ponies were all very different from Nagger. The chances were against Nagger. 
Come on, old boy. If I can do it, you can, he said. Sloan had never seen a trail as perilous as this. He was afraid for his horse. A slip meant death. The way Nagger trembled and every muscle showed his feelings, but he never flinched. He would follow Sloan anywhere, providing Sloan rode him or led him. And here, as riding was impossible, Sloan went before. If the horse slipped, there would be a double tragedy, for Nagger would knock his master off the cliff. Sloan set his teeth and stepped down. He did not let Nagger see this fear. He was taking the greatest risk he had ever run. The break in the wall led to a ledge, and the ledge dropped from step to step, and these had bare slippery slants between. Nagger was splendid on a bad trail. He had methods peculiar to his huge build and great weight. He crashed down over the stone steps, both front hoofs at once, the slants he slid down on his haunches with his forelegs stiff and the iron shoes scraping. He snorted and heaved and grew wet with sweat. He tossed his head at some of the places, but he never hesitated, and it was impossible for him to go slowly. Whenever Sloan came to corrugated stretches in the trail, he felt grateful. But these were few. The rock was like smooth red iron. Sloan had never seen such hard rock. It took him long to realize that it was marble. His heart seemed a tense, painful knot in his chest, as if it could not beat, holding back the strained suspense. But Nagger never jerked in the bridle. He never faltered. Many times he slipped, often with both front feet, but never with all four feet, so he did not fall. And the red wall began again to loom above Sloan. Then suddenly he seemed brought to a point where it was impossible to descend. It was a round bulge, slanting fearfully with only a few rough surfaces to hold a foot. Wildfire had left a broad, clear-swept mark at that place, and red hairs on some of the sharp points. He had slid down. Below was an offset that fortunately prevented further sliding. Sloan started to walk down this place, but when Nagger began to slide, Sloan had to let go the bridle and jump. Both he and the horse landed safely. Luck was with them. And they went on, down and down to reach the base of the great wall, scraped and exhausted, wet with sweat, but unhurt. As Sloan gazed upward, he felt the impossibility of believing what he knew to be true. He hugged and petted the horse. Then he led on to the roaring stream. It was green water, white with foam. Sloan had waded and found the water cool and shallow and very swift. He had to hold Nagger to keep him from being swept downstream. They crossed in safety. There in the sand showed Wildfire's tracks, and here were signs of another Indian camp half a year old. The shade of the cottonwoods was pleasant. Sloan found this valley oppressively hot. There was no wind, and the sand blistered his feet through his boots. Wildfire held to the Indian trail that had guided him down into the wilderness of Worn Rock. And that trail crossed the stream at every turn of the twisting, narrow valley. Sloan enjoyed getting into the water. He hung his gun over the pommel and let the water roll him. A dozen times he and Nagger forded the rushing torrent. Then they came to a box-like closing of the valley to canyon walls. And here, the trail evidently followed the stream bed. There was no other way. Sloan waded in 
and stumbled, rolled, and floated ahead of the sturdy horse. Nagger was wet to his breast, but he did not fall. This gulch seemed to be full of hollow, rushing roar. It opened out into a wide valley, and Wildfire's tracks took to the left side and began to climb the slope. Here the traveling was good, considering what had been passed. Once up out of the valley floor, Sloane saw Wildfire ahead, high on the slope. He did not appear to be limping, but he was not going fast. Sloane watched as he climbed. What and where would be the end of this chase? Sometimes Wildfire was plain in his sight for a moment, but usually he was hidden by the rocks. The slope was one of great talus, a jumble of weathered rock, fallen from what appeared to be a mountain of red and yellow wall. Here the heat of the sun fell upon him like fire. The rocks were so hot Sloan could not touch them with his bare hand. The close of the afternoon was approaching, and this slope was interminably long. Still, it was not steep, and the trail was good. At last, from the height of the slope, Wildfire appeared, looking back and down. Then he was gone. Sloan plodded upward. Long before he reached that summit, he heard the dull rumble of the river. It grew to be a roar, yet it seemed distant. Would the great desert river stop Wildfire in his flight? Sloan doubted it. He surmounted the ridge to find the canyon opening in a tremendous gap, and to see down, far down. A glittering sun-blasted slope merging into a deep black gulch where a red river swept and chafed and roared. Somehow the river was what he had expected to see. A force that had cut and ground this canyon could have been nothing but a river like that. The trail led down and Sloan had no doubt that it crossed the river and led up out of the canyon. He wanted to stay there and graze endlessly and listen. At length, he began the descent. As he proceeded, it seemed that the roar of the river lessened. He could not understand why this was so. It took half an hour to reach the last level, a ghastly black iron-ribbed canyon bed with the river splitting it. He had not had a glimpse of wildfire on this side of the divide, but he found his tracks, and they led down off the last level, through a notch in the black bank of marble, to a sandbar in the river. Wildfire had walked straight off the sand into the water. Sloan studied the river and the shore. The water ran slow, heavily in sluggish eddies. From far up the canyon came the roar of a rapid, and from below the roar of another, heavier and closer. The river appeared tremendous, in ways Sloan felt rather than realized. Yet it was not swift, Studying the black, rough wall of rock above him, he saw marks where the river had been sixty feet higher than where he stood on the sand. It was low then. How lucky for him that he had gotten there before the flood season. He believed wildfire had crossed easily, and he knew Nagger could make it. Then he piled and tied his supplies and weapons high on the saddle to keep them dry, and looked for a place to take the water. Wildfire had sunk deep before reaching the edge. Manifestly, he had lunged the last few feet. Sloan found a better place and waded in, urging Nagger. The big horse plunged, almost going under, and began to swim. Sloan kept upstream beside him. He found presently that the water was thick and made him tired, so it was necessary to grasp a stirrup and to be towed. 
The river appeared only a few hundred feet wide, but probably it was wider than it looked. Nagger labored heavily near the opposite shore. Still, he landed safely upon a rocky bank. There were patches of sand in which Wildfire's tracks showed so fresh that the water had not yet dried out of them. Sloan rested his horse before attempting to climb out of that split in the rock. However, Wildfire had found an easy ascent. On this side of the canyon, the bare rock did not predominate. A clear trail led up a dusty, gravelly slope, upon which scant greasewood and cactus appeared. Half an hour's climbing brought Sloan to where he could see that he was entering a vast valley, sloping up and narrowing to a notch in the dark cliffs, above which towered the great red wall, and about that the slopes of cedar and the yellow rim rock. And scarcely a mile distant, bright in the westering sunlight, shone the red stallion, moving slowly. Sloan pressed on steadily. Just before dark, he came to an ideal spot to camp. The valley had closed up so that the lofty walls cast shadows that met. A clump of cottonwoods surrounding a spring, abundance of rich grass, willows, and flowers lining the bank formed an oasis in this bare valley. Sloan was tired out from the day of ceaseless toil down and up, and he could scarcely keep his eyes open. But he tried to stay awake. The dead silence of the valley, the dry fragrance, the dreaming walls, the advent of night low down, when up on the ramparts the last red rays of the sun lingered, the strange loneliness, these were sweet and comforting to him. And that night's sleep was a moment. He opened his eyes to see the crags and towers and peaks and domes and the lofty walls of that vast broken chaos of canyons across the river. They were now emerging from the misty gray of dawn, growing pink and lilac and purple under the rising sun. He arose and set about his few tasks, which, being soon finished, allowed him an early start. Wildfire had grazed along no more than a mile in the lead. Sloan looked eagerly up the narrowing canyon, but he was not rewarded by a sight of the stallion. As he progressed up a gradually ascending trail, he became aware of the fact that the notch he had long looked up to was where the great red walls closed in and almost met. And the trail zigzagged up this narrow vent, so steep that only a few steps could be taken without rest. Sloan toiled up for an hour, an age, till he was wet, burning, choked with great weight on his chest. Yet, still, he was only halfway up that awful break between the walls. Sometimes he could have tossed a stone down upon a part of the trail, only a few rods below, yet many, many wary steps of actual toil. As he got farther up, the notch widened. What had been scarcely visible from the valley below was now colossal in actual dimensions. The trail was like a twisted mile of thread between two bulging mountain walls leaning their ledges and fronts over this tilted pass. Sloan rested often. Nagger appreciated this and heaved gratefully at every halt. In this monotonous toil, Sloan forgot the zest of his pursuit, and when Nagger suddenly snorted in fright, Sloan was not prepared for what he saw. 
Above him ran a low red wall, around which evidently the trail led. At the curve, which was a promontory, scarcely a hundred feet in an airline above him, he saw something red moving, bobbing, coming out into view. It was a horse. Wildfire, no farther away than the length of three lassos. There he stood looking down. He fulfilled all of Sloane's dreams, only he was bigger. But he was so magnificently proportioned that he did not seem heavy. His coat was shaggy and red. It was not glossy. The color was what made him shine. His mane was like a crest, mounting, then falling low. Sloane had never seen so much muscle on a horse. Yet his outline was graceful, beautiful. The head was indeed that of the wildest of all wild creatures, a stallion born wild. And it was beautiful, savage, splendid, everything but noble. Sloane thought that if a horse could express hate, surely wildfire did then. It was certain that he did not express curiosity and fury. Sloane shook a gantled fist at the stallion, as if the horse were human. That was a natural action for a rider of his kind. Wildfire turned away, showed bright against the dark background, and then disappeared. That was the last Sloan saw of Wildfire for three days. It took all of this day to climb out of the canyon. The second was a slow march of 30 miles into a scrub cedar and pinyon forest, through which the great red and yellow walls of the canyon could be seen. That night Sloan found a water hole and a rocky pocket and a little grass for Nagger. The third day's travel consisted of 40 miles or more through level pine forests, dry and odorous, but lacking the freshness and beauty of the forest on the north side of the canyon. On this south side, a strange feature was that all the water, when there was any, ran away from the rim. Sloan camped this night at a muddy pond in the woods, where wildfire's tracks showed plainly. On the following day, Sloan rode out of the forest into a country of scantly cedars, bleached and stunted, and out of this to the edge of a plateau, from which the shimmering desert flung its vast and desolate distances, foreboding and menacing. This was not the desert upland country of Utah, but a naked and bony world of colored rock and sand, a painted desert of heat and wind and flying sand and waterless wastes and barren ranges. But it did not daunt Sloan. For far down on the bare, billowing ridges moved a red speck at a snail's pace, a slowly moving dot of color, which was wildfire. On open ground like this, Nagger, carrying 250 pounds, showed his wonderful quality. He did not mind the heat, nor the sand, nor the glare, nor the distance, nor his burden. He did not tire. He was an engine of tremendous power. 
Sloan gained upon Wildfire, and toward evening of that day he reached to within a half mile of the stallion, and he chose to keep that far behind. That night he camped where there was dry grass, but no water. Next day he followed Wildfire down and down, over the endless swell of rolling red ridges, bare of all but bleached white grass and meager greasewood, always descending in the face of that painted desert of bold and ragged steps. Sloan made fifty miles that day and gained the valley bed, where a slender stream ran thin and spread over a wide sandy bottom. It was salty water, but it was welcome to both man and beast. The following day he crossed, and the tracks of wildfire were still wet on the sandbars. The stallion was slowing down. Sloan saw him limping along, not far in advance. There was a ten-mile stretch of level ground, blown hard as a rock, from which the sustenance had been bleached. Not a spear of grass grew there, and following that was a torturous passage through a weird region of clay dunes. Blue and violet heliotrope and lavender, all worn smooth by rain and wind. Wildfire favored the soft ground now. He had deviated from his straight course, and he was partial to washes and dips in the earth where the water might have logged. And he was not now scornful of a screen-scrummed waterhole with its white margin of alkali. That night Sloan made camp with wildfire in plain sight. The stallion stopped when his pursuers stopped, and he began to graze on the same stretch with Nagger. How strange this seemed to Sloan. Here, at this camp, was evidence of Indians. Wildfire had swung around to the north in his course. Like any pursued animal, he had begun to circle, and he had pointed his nose toward the Utah that he had left. Next morning, Wildfire was not in sight, but he had left his tracks in the sand. Sloan trailed him with Nagger at a trot. Toward the head of this sandy flat, Sloan came upon old cornfields and a broken dam where the water had been stored, and well-defined trails leading away to the right. Somewhere over there in the desert lived Indians. At this point, Wildfire abandoned the trail he had followed for many days and cut out more to the north. It took all the morning hours to climb three great steps and benches that led up to the summit of a mesa vast in extent. It turned out to be a sandy waste. The wind rose and everywhere were moving sheets of sand, and in the distance circular yellow dust devils rising high like water spouts, and back down in the sun-scorched valley a sandstorm moved along majestically, burying the desert in its yellow pall. Then two more days of sand and another day of a slowly rising ground growing from bare to gray and gray to green, and then to the purple of sage and cedar. These three grinding days were toiled out with only one waterhole. And wildfire was lame and in distress, and Nagger was growing gaunt and showing strain, and Sloan, haggard and black and worn, plodded miles and miles on foot to save his horse. Sloan felt that it would be futile to put the chase to a test of speed. Nagger could never head that stallion. Sloan meant to go on and on, always pushing wildfire, keeping him tired, wearied, and worrying him till a section of the country was reached where he could drive wildfire into some kind of natural trap. The pursuit seemed endless. 
Wildfire kept to open country, where he could not be surprised. There came a morning when Sloane climbed to a cedar plateau that rose for a whole day's travel, and then split into a labyrinthine maze of canyons. There were trees, grass, water. It was a high country, cool and wild, like the uplands he had left. For days he camped on Wildfire's trail, always relentlessly driving him, always watching for the trap he hoped to find. And the Red Stallion spent much of his time of flight in looking backward. Whenever Sloane came in sight of him, he had his head over his shoulder, watching. And on the soft ground of these canyons, he had begun to recover from his lameness. But this did not worry Sloane. Sooner or later, wildfire would go down into a high-walled wash from which there could be no outlet. Or he would wander into a box canyon, or he would climb out on a mesa with no place to descend unless he passed Sloane. Or he would get cornered on a soft, steep slope where his hooves would sink deep and make him slow. The nature of the desert had changed. Sloane had entered a wonderful region, the like of which he had not seen, a high plateau crisscrossed in every direction by narrow canyons with red walls a thousand feet high. And one of the strange turning canyons opened into a vast valley of monuments. The plateau had weathered and washed away, leaving huge sections of stone walls, all standing isolated, different in size and shape, but all clean-cut, bold, with straight lines. They stood up everywhere, monumental, towering, many-colored, lending a singular and beautiful aspect to the great green and gray valley, billowing away to the north where dim, broken battlements mounted to the clouds. The only living thing in Sloane's sight was wildfire. He shone red on the green slope. Sloane's heart swelled. This was the setting for that grand horse, a perfect, wild range. But also it seemed the last place where there might be any chance to trap the stallion. Still, that did not alter Sloane's purpose, though it lost to him the joy of former hopes. He rode down the slope, out upon the billowing floor of the valley, Wildfire looked back to see his pursuers, and then the solemn stillness broke to a wild, piercing whistle. Day after day, camping where night found him, Sloane followed the stallion, never losing sight of him till darkness had fallen. The valley was immense and the monuments miles apart, but they always seemed close together and near him. The air magnified everything. Sloane lost track of time. The strange, solemn, lonely days and the silent, lonely nights and the endless pursuit and the wild, Weird Valley. These completed the works of years on Sloane, and he became satisfied, unthinking, almost savage. The toil and privation had worn him down, and he was like iron. His garments hung in tatters, his boots were ripped and soleless. Long since his flour had been used up, and all his supplies except the salt, 
He lived on the meat of rabbits, but they were scarce. And the time came when there were none. Some days he did not eat. Hunger did not make him suffer. He killed a desert bird now and then, and once a wildcat crossing the valley. Eventually, he felt his strength diminishing, and then he took to digging out pack rats and cooking them. But these too were scarce. At length, starvation faced Sloan, but he knew he would not starve. Many times he had been within rifle shot of wildfire, and the grim forbidding thought grew upon him that he must kill the stallion. The thought seemed involuntary, but his mind rejected it. Nevertheless, he knew that if he could not capture the stallion, he would kill him. That had been the end of many a desperate rider's pursuit of a coveted horse. While Sloan kept on his merciless pursuit, never letting wildfire rest by day, time went on just as relentlessly. Spring gave way to early summer, the hot sun bleached the grass, water holes failed out in the valley, and water could be found only in the canyons. And the dry winds began to blow the sand. It was a sandy valley, green and gray, only at a distance, and out toward the north there were no monuments, and the slow heave of sand lifted toward the dim walls. Wildfire worked away from this open valley, back to the south end, where the great monuments loomed, and still farther back, where they grew closer, till at length some of them were joined by weathered ridges to the walls of the surrounding plateau. For all that Sloan could see, Wildfire was in perfect condition, but Nagger was not the horse he had been. Sloan realized that in one way or another, the pursuit was narrowing down to the end. He found a water hole at the head of a wash and a split in the walls, and here he let Nagger rest and graze one whole day, the first day for a long time that he had not kept the red stallion in sight. That day was marked by the good fortune of killing a rabbit, and while eating it, his gloomy fixed mind admitted that he was starving. He dreaded the next sunrise, but he could not hold it back. There, behind the dark monuments, standing sentinel-like, the sky lightened and reddened and burnt into a gold and pink, till out of the golden glare the sun rose glorious, and Sloan, facing the league-long shadows of the monuments, rode out again into the silent, solemn day on his hopeless quest. For a change, Wildfire had climbed high up a slope of talus, through a narrow pass, rounded over with drifting sand. And Sloan gazed down into a huge amphitheater full of monuments, like all that strange country. A basin three miles across lay beneath him, walls and weathered slants of rock and steep slopes of reddish-yellow sand enclosed this oval depression. The floor was white, and it seemed to move gently or radiate with heat waves. Studying it, Sloan made out that the motion was caused by wind and long, bleached grass. He had crossed small areas of this grass in different parts of the region. Wildfire's tracks led down into this basin, and presently Sloan, by straining his eyes, made out the red spot that was the stallion. He's looking to quit the country, soliloquized Sloan as he surveyed the scene. With keen, slow gaze, Sloan studied the lay of the wall and the slope, and when he had circled the huge depression, he made sure that Wildfire could not get out except by the narrow pass through which he had gone in. 
Sloan sat astride Nagger in the mouth of this pass, a wash a few yards wide, walled by broken rough rock on one side and an insurmountable slope on the other. If this hole was only little now, sighed Sloan as he gazed at the sweeping, shimmering oval floor, I might have a chance, but down there, we couldn't get near him. There was no water in that dry bowl. Sloan reflected on the uselessness of keeping wildfire down there, because Nagger would not go without water as long as wildfire. For the first time, Sloan hesitated. It seemed merciless to Nagger to drive him into this hot, windy hole. The wind blew from the west, and it swooped up the slope, hot with the odor of dry, dead grass. But that hot wind stirred Sloan with an idea, and suddenly he was tense, excited, glowing, yet grim and hard. Wildfire, I'll make you run with your namesake in that high grass, called Sloan. The speech was full of bitter failure, of regret, of the hardness of a rider who could not give up the horse to freedom. Sloan meant to ride down there and fire the long grass. In that wind, there would indeed be wildfire to race with the red stallion. It would perhaps mean his death. At least it would chase him out of that hole where to follow him would be useless. I'd make you hump now to get away if I could get behind you, muttered Sloan. He saw that if he could fire the grass on the other side, the wind of flame would drive wildfire straight toward him. The slopes and walls narrowed up the pass, but high grass grew to within a few rods of where Sloan stood. But it seemed impossible to get behind wildfire. At night, then, I could get round him, said Sloan, thinking hard and narrowing his gaze to scan the circle of wall and slope. Why not? No wind at night. That grass would burn slow till morning, till the wind came up, and it's been west for days. Suddenly, Sloan began to pound the patient nagger and cry out to him in a wild exultance, Old horse, we've got him now. We've got him. We'll put a rope on him before this time tomorrow. Sloan yielded to his strange wild joy, but it did not last long, soon seceding to sober keen thought. He rode down into the bowl a mile, making absolutely certain that wildfire could not climb out on that side. The far end, beyond the monuments, was a sheer wall of rock. Then he crossed to the left side. Here the sandy slope was almost too steep for even him to go up, and there was grass that would burn. He returned to the pass, assured that wildfire had at last fallen into a trap like Sloan had never dreamed of. The great horse was doomed to run into living flame or the whirling noose of a lasso. Then Sloan reflected. Nagger had that very morning had his fill of good water, the first really satisfying drink for days. If he was rested that day, on the morrow, he would be fit for the grueling work possibly in store for him. Sloan unsaddled the horse and turned him loose and with a snort he made down the gentle slope for the grass. Then Sloan carried his saddle to a shady spot afforded by the slab of rock and a dwarf cedar, and here he composed himself to rest and watch and think and wait. Wildfire was plainly in sight, no more than two miles away. Gradually he was grazing along toward the monuments in the far end of the Great Basin. Sloan believed, because the place was so large, that Wildfire thought there was a way out on the other side, over the slopes, or through the walls. 
Never before had the far-sighted stallion made a mistake. Sloane suddenly felt the keen, stabbing fear of an outlet somewhere, but it left him quickly. He had studied those slopes and walls. Wildfire could not get out except by the pass he had entered, unless he could fly. Sloane lay in the saddle, his head propped up on his saddle, and while gazing down into the shimmering hollow, he began to plan. He calculated that he must be able to carry fire swiftly across the far end of the basin, so that he would not be absent long from the mouth of the pass. Fire was always a difficult matter, since he must depend only on flint and steel. He decided to wait till dark, build a fire with dead cedar sticks, and carry a bundle of them with burning ends. He felt assured that the wind caused by riding would keep them burning. After he had lighted the grass, all he had to do was to hurry back to his stallion and there await developments. The day passed slowly, and it was hot. The heat waves rose in dark wavering lines and veils from the valley. The wind blew almost a gale. Thin, curling sheets of sand blew up over the crests of the slopes, and the sound it made was a soft silken rustling very low. The sky was a steely blue above and copper close over the distant walls. That afternoon, toward the close, Sloane ate the last of the meat. At sunset, the wind died away and the air cooled. There was a strip of red along the wall of rock and on the tips of the monuments, and it lingered there for long, a strange, bright crown. Nagger was not far away, but wildfire had disappeared, probably behind one of the monuments. When twilight fell, Sloane went down after Nagger, and returning with him, put on the bridle and saddle. Then he began to search for suitable sticks of wood. Farther back in the pass, he found stunted dead cedars, and from these secured enough for his purpose. He kindled a fire and burned the ends of the sticks into red embers. Making a bundle of these, he put them under his arm, the dull glowing ends backward, and then mounted his horse. It was just about dark when he faced down into the valley. When he reached the level ground, he kept to the edge of the left slope and put Nagger to a good trot. The grass and brush were scant here, and the color of the sand was light, so he had no difficulty in traveling. From time to time, his horse went through the grass, and its dry, crackling rustle showing how it would burn was music to Sloane. Gradually, the monuments began to loom up, bold and black against the blue sky, with stars seemingly hanging close over them. Sloane had calculated that the basin was smaller than it really was, in both length and breadth. This worried him. Wildfire might see or hear or scent him, and make a break back to the pass, and thus escape. Sloane was glad when the huge dark monuments were indistinguishable from the black frowning wall. He had to go slower here because of the darkness. But at last he reached the slow rise of jumbled rock that evidently marked the extent of the weathering on that side. Here he turned to the right and rode out into the valley. The floor was level and thickly overgrown with long dead grass and dead greasewood, dry as tinder. It was easy to account for the dryness. Neither snow nor rain had visited that valley for many months. Sloane whipped one of the sticks in the wind and soon had the smoldering red end showering sparks. Then he dropped the stick in the grass with curious intent 
and a strange feeling of regret. Instantly, the grass blazed with a little sputtering roar. Nagger snorted. Wildfire, exclaimed Sloan. That word was a favorite one with riders, and now Sloan used it both to call out his menace to the stallion and to express his feeling for that blaze, already running wild. Without looking back, Sloan rode across the valley, dropping a glowing stick every quarter of a mile. When he reached the other side, there was a dozen fires behind him, burning slowly, with white smoke rising lazily. Then he loped Nagger along the side, back to the sandy ascent, and on top of the mouth of the pass, there he searched for tracks. Wildfire had not gone out, and Sloan experienced relief and exaltation. He took up a position in the middle of the narrowest part of the pass, and there, with Nagger ready for anything, he once more composed himself to watch and wait. Far across the darkness of the valley, low down, twelve lines of fire, widely separated, crept toward one another. They appeared thin and slow, with only an occasional leaping flame, and some of the black spaces must have been monuments, blotting out the creeping snail lines of red. Sloan watched, strangely fascinated. What do you think of that? he said aloud, and he meant his query for wildfire. As he watched the lines perceptibly lengthened and brightened and pale shadows of smoke began to appear, over the left of the valley the two brightest fires, the first he had started, crept closer and closer together. They seemed long and covering distance, but not a breath of wind stirred. And besides, they really might move swiftly without looking so to Sloan. When the two lines met, a sudden and larger blaze rose. Ah, said the rider, and he watched the other lines creeping together. How slowly fire moved, he thought. The red stallion would have every chance to run between those lines if he dared. But a wild horse fears nothing like fire. This one would not run the gauntlet of flames. Nevertheless, Sloan felt more and more relieved as the lines closed. The hours of the night dragged past until at length one long continuous line of fire spread across the valley, its bright red line broken only where the monuments of stone were silhouetted against it. The darkness of the valley changed. The light of the moon changed. The radiance of the stars changed. Either the line of fire was finding denser fuel to consume, or it was growing appreciably closer, for the flames began to grow, to leap, and to flare. Sloan strained his ears for the thud of hooves on sand. The time seemed endless in its futility of results, but fleeting after it had passed, and he could tell how the hours fled by the ever-recurring need to replenish the little fire he kept burning in the pass. A broad belt of valley grew bright in the light, and behind it loomed the monuments, weird and dark, with columns of yellow and white smoke wreathing them. Suddenly, Sloan's sensitive ear vibrated to a thrilling sound. He leaned down to place his ear to the sand. Rapid, rhythmic beats of hooves made him leap to his feet, reaching for his lasso with his right hand and a gun with his left. Nagger lifted his head, sniffed the air, and snorted. Sloan peered into the black belt of gloom that lay below him. It would be hard to see a horse there, unless he got high enough to be silhouetted against that line of fire, now flaring to the sky. But he heard that beat of hooves, swift, sharp, louder, louder. 
The night shadows were deceptive. That wonderful light confused him, made the place unreal. Was he dreaming? Or had the long chase and its privations unhinged his mind? He reached for Nagger. No! The big black was real, alive, quivering, pounding the sand. He scented an enemy. Once more, Sloan peered down into the void, or what seemed a void. But it, too, had changed, lightened. The whole valley was brightening. Great palls of curling smoke rose white and yellow to turn black as the monuments met their crests, and then roll upward, blotting out the stars. It was such a light as he had never seen, except in dreams. Pale moonlight and dimmed starlight and wan dawn, all vague and strange and shadowy under the wild and vivid light of burning grass. In the pale path before Sloan, that fan-like slope of sand which opened down into the valley appeared a swiftly moving black object, like a fleeing phantom. It was a phantom horse. Sloan felt that his eyes, deceived by his mind, saw racing images. Many a wild horse chase he had lived in dreams on some far desert. But what was that beating in his ears? Sharp. Swift. Even. Rhythmic? Never had his ears played him false. Never had he heard things in his dreams. That running object was a horse, and he was coming like the wind. Sloan felt something grip his heart, all the time in endurance and pain and thirst and suspense and longing and hopelessness. The agony of the whole endless chase closed tight on his heart in that instant. The running horse halted just in the belt of light cast by the burning grass. There he stood sharply defined, clear as a cameo, not a hundred paces from Sloan. It was wildfire. Sloan uttered an involuntary cry. Thrill on thrill shot through him. Delight and hope and fear and despair claimed him in swift, successive flashes. And then again, the ruling passion of a rider held him, the sheer joy of a grand and unattainable horse. For Sloan gave up wildfire in that splendid moment. How had he ever dared to believe he could capture that wild stallion? Sloan looked and looked, filling his mind, regretting nothing, sure that the moment was reward for all that he had endured. The weird lights magnified wildfire and showed him clearly. He seemed gigantic. He shone black against the fire. His head was high, his mane flying. Behind him, the fire flared, and the valley-wide column of smoke rolled majestically upward, and the great monuments seemed to retreat darkly and mysteriously as the flames advanced beyond them. It was a beautiful, unearthly spectacle, with its silence the strangest feature. But suddenly, Wildfire broke that silence with a whistle, which to Sloane's overstrained faculties seemed a blast as piercing as the splitting sound of lightning, and with the whistle, Wildfire plunged up toward the pass. Sloane yelled at the top of his lungs and fired his gun before he could terrorize the stallion and drive him back down the slope. Soon, Wildfire became again a running black object, and then he disappeared. The great line of fire had gotten beyond the monuments and now stretched unbroken across the valley from wall to slope. Wildfire could never pierce that line of flames, and now Sloane saw in that paling sky to the east that dawn was at hand. (laughs) 
Sloan looked grimly glad when simultaneously, with the first red flash of sunrise, a breeze fanned his cheek. All that was needed now was a west wind, and here came the assurance of it. The valley appeared hazy and smoky with slow rolling clouds low down where the line of fire moved. The coming of daylight paled the blaze of the grass, though here and there Sloan caught flickering glimpses of the dull red flame. The wild stallion kept to the center of the valley, restlessly facing this way and that, but never toward the smoke. Sloan made sure that wildfire gradually gave ground as the line of smoke slowly worked toward him. Every moment the breeze freshened grew steadier and stronger until Sloan saw that it began to clear the valley of the low-hanging smoke. There came a time when once more the blazing line extended across from slope to slope. Wildfire was cornered, trapped. Many times Sloan nervously uncoiled and recoiled his lasso. Presently, the great chance of his life would come the hardest and most important to throw he would ever have with a rope. He did not miss often, but then again he missed sometimes, and here he must be swift and sure. It annoyed him that his hands perspired and trembled and that something weighty seemed to obstruct his breathing. He muttered that he was pretty much worn out, not in the best condition for a hard fight with a wild horse. Still, he would capture wildfire. His mind was unalterably set there. He anticipated that the stallion would make a final and desperate rush past him, and he had his plan of action all outlined. What worried him was the possibility of wildfires doing some unforeseen feat at the very last. Sloan was prepared for hours of strained watching, and then a desperate effort, and then a shock that might kill wildfire and cripple Nagger, or a long race and flight. But he soon discovered that he was wrong about the long watch and wait. The wind had grown strong and was driving the fire swiftly. The flames fanned by the breeze leaped to a formidable barrier. In less than an hour, though the time seemed only a few moments to the excited Sloan, wildfire had been driven down toward the narrowing neck of the valley, and he had begun to run to and fro, back and forth. Any moment, then... Sloan expected him to grow terrorized and to come tearing up toward the pass. Wildfire showed evidence of terror, but he did not attempt to make the pass. Instead, he went at the right-hand slope of the valley and began to climb. The slope was steep and soft, yet the stallion climbed up and up. The dust flew in clouds, the gravel rolled down, and the sand followed in long streams. Wildfire showed his keenness by zigzagging up the slope. Go ahead, you red devil, yelled Sloan. He was much elated. In that soft bank, Wildfire would tire out while not hurting himself. Sloan watched the stallion in admiration and pity and exultation. Wildfire did not make much headway, for he slipped back almost as much as he gained. He attempted one place after another while he failed. There was a bank of clay some few feet high, and he could not round it at either end or surmount it in the middle. Finally, he literally pawed and cut a path, much as if he were digging in the sand for water. When he got over that, he was not much better off. The slope above was endless and grew steeper, more difficult toward the top. Sloan knew absolutely that no horse could ever climb over it. He grew apprehensive, however, for wildfire might stick up there on the slope until the line of fire passed. 
The horse apparently shunned any near proximity to the fire and performed prodigious efforts to escape. He'll be riding an avalanche pretty soon, muttered Sloan. Long sheets of sand and gravel slid down to spill thinly over the low bank. Wildfire, now sinking to his knees, worked steadily upward till he had reached a point halfway up the slope, at the head of a long yellow bank of treacherous-looking sand. Here he was halted by a low bulge, which he might have surmounted had his feet been free. But he stood deep in the sand. For the first time he looked down at the sweeping fire, then at Sloan. Suddenly the bank of sand began to slide with him. He snorted in fright. The avalanche started slowly and was evidently no mere surface slide. It was deep. It stopped, then started again, and again stopped. Wildfire appeared to be sinking deeper and deeper. His struggles only embedded him more firmly. Then the bank of sand, with an ominous low roar, began to move once more. This time it slipped swiftly. The dust rose in a cloud, almost obscuring the horse. Long streams of gravel rattled down, and waterfalls of sand waved over the steps of the slope. Just as suddenly, the avalanche stopped again. Sloan saw from the great oval hole it had left above that it was indeed deep. That was the reason it did not slide readily. When the dust cleared away, Sloan saw the stallion sunk to his flanks in the sand, utterly hopeless. With a wild whoop, Sloan leaped off Nagger, and a lasso in each hand, he ran down the long bank. The fire was perhaps a quarter of a mile distant, and since the grass was thinning out, it was not coming so fast as it had been. The position of the stallion was halfway between the fire and Sloan, a hundred yards up the slope. Like a madman, Sloan climbed up through the dragging, loose sand. He was beside himself with a fury of excitement. He fancied his eyes were failing him, that it was not possible the great horse really was up there, helpless in the sand. Yet every huge stride Sloan took brought him closer to the fact that he could not deny. In his eagerness, he slipped and fell and crawled and leaped until he reached the slide which held Wildfire prisoner. The stallion might have been fast and quicksand up to his body for all the movement he could make. He could only move his head. He held that up, his eyes wild, showing the whites, his foaming mouth wide open, his teeth gleaming. A sound like a scream rent the air. Terrible fear and hate were expressed in that piercing neigh. And a shaggy, wet, dusty red, with all of brute savageness and the look and the action of his head, he appeared hideous. As Sloan leaped within roping distance, the avalanche slipped a foot or two, halted, slipped once more, and slowly started again with that low roar. He did not care whether it slipped or stopped. Like a wolf, he leaped closer, whirling with his rope. The hoop hissed round his head and whistled as he flung it. And then, fiercely, he jerked back on the rope. The noose closed tight around Wildfire's neck. I got a rope on him, cried Sloan in hoarse pants. He started unbelieving. It was unreal, that sight. Unreal, like the slow grinding movement of the avalanche underneath him. Wildfire's head seemed a demon head of hate. It reached out, mouth agape, to bite, to rend. That horrible scream could not be the scream of a horse. Sloan was a wild horse hunter, a rider. And when that second of incredulity flashed by, then came the moment of triumph. No moment could ever equal that one. 
When he realized he stood there with a rope around that grand stallion's neck, all the days and all the miles and all the toil and the endurance and the hopelessness and the hunger were paid for in that moment. His heart seemed too large for his breast. I tracked you, he cried savagely. I stayed with you, and I got a rope on you, and I'll ride you, you red devil. The passion of the man was intense. That endless racking pursuit had brought out all the hardness the desert had engendered in him. Almost hate instead of love, spoke in Sloane's words. He hauled on the lasso, pulling the stallion's head down and down. The action was the lust of capture, as well as the rider's instinctive motive to make the horse fear him. Life was unquenchably wild and strong in that stallion. It showed in the terror which made him hideous. And man and beast somehow resembled each other in that moment, which was inimmissible to noble life. The avalanche slipped with little jerks, as if treacherously loosing its hold for a long plunge. The line of fire below ate at the bleached grass, and the long column of smoke curled away on the wind. Sloan held the taut lasso with his left hand, and with the right he swung the other rope, catching the noose round Wildfire's nose. Then letting go of the first rope, he hauled on the other, pulling the head of the stallion far down. Hand over hand, Sloan closed in on the horse. He leaped on Wildfire's head, pressed it down, and holding it down in the sand with his knees, with his swift fingers, he tied the nose in a hackamore, an improvised halter. Then... Just as swiftly, he bound his scarf tight round Wildfire's head, blindfolding him. All so easy, exclaimed Sloane under his breath. Who would believe it? Is it a dream? He rose and let the stallion have a free head. Wildfire, I got a rope on you, and a hackamore, and a blinder, said Sloane. And if I had a bridle, I'd put that on you too. Who'd ever believe you'd catch yourself dragging in the sand? Sloane, finding himself falling on the sand, grew alive to the augmented movements of the avalanche. It had begun to slive, to heave and budge and crack. Dust rose in clouds from all around. The sand appeared to open and let him sink to his knees. The rattle of gravel was drowned in a soft roar. Then he shot down swiftly, holding the lassos, keeping himself erect, and riding as if in a boat. He felt the successive steps of the slope, and then the long incline below, and then the checking and rising and spreading of the avalanche as it slowed on the level. All movement then was checked violently. He appeared to be half buried in sand. While he struggled to extricate himself, the thick dust blew away and settled so that he could see. Wildfire lay before him at the edge of the slide, and now he was not so deeply embedded as he had been up on the slope. He was struggling and probably soon would have been able to get out. The line of fire was close now, but Sloane did not fear that. At his shrill whistle, Nagger bounded toward him, obedient but snorting with his ears laid back. He halted. A second whistle started him again. Sloane finally dug himself out of the sand, pulled the lassos out, and ran the length of them toward Nagger. The black showed both fear and fright. His eyes rolled and he half shied away. Come on, called Sloane harshly. He got a hand on the horse, pulled him around, and mounting in a flash, bound both the lassos around the pommel of the saddle. Haul him out, Nagger, old boy, cried Sloane, and he dug his spurs into the black. 
One plunge of naggers slid the stallion out of the sand. Snorting, wild, blinded, wildfire got up, shaking in every limb. He could not see his enemies. The blowing smoke right in his nose made scent impossible. But in the taut lassos, he sensed the direction of his captors. He plunged, rearing at the end of the plunge, and struck out viciously with his hooves. Sloan, quick with a spur and a bridle, swerved Nagger aside and wildfire off his balance, went down with a crash. Stretched him out, pulled him over twice before he got his forefeet planted. Once up, he reared again, screeching his rage, striking wildly with his hooves. Sloan wheeled aside and toppled him over again. Wildfire, it's no fair fight, he called grimly. But you led me a chase, and you learn right now, I'm boss. Zane Gray was an American author and dentist. He began writing in the evenings to offset the mundaneness of his dentistry practice. His work has been adapted into over 112 films, two television episodes, and a television series. The more popular Zane Grey became, the more negatively literary critics treated him. Grey was one of the few writers who stood up to the literary critics, writing a 20-page rebuttal in 1923, which he defended his work by suggesting that the critics should ask his readers what they think of his books, which by then were very popular, and he was pivotal in helping to define the Western genre. If you liked this episode of Stories, Tales, Myths, and Legends, you can subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'll bring you another story, tale, myth, or legend soon. Thanks for listening. Hey, if you've listened this far, I'm going to assume that you are an individual who likes stories of all kinds. I wanted to point you to a podcast that two of my co-workers at the Community Library Network do that's called The Book Isn't Necessarily Better. Roxanne and Michaela do a great job of unpacking stories and their adaptations in this fun podcast. You should check it out. That's The Book Isn't Necessarily Better. Happy listening.